1: Hello, my friends, Dakriti here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. I am unfortunately not joined today by my wife, Gabby, as we are currently in a little bit of a time crunch because we are quite literally within an hour and a half of having to leave in order to go to a LARPing event that we are doing in South Carolina called the War of the Barons. Yes, my friends, I am actually going to be leading my own contingent of troops in this event, and I am really looking forward to it. But... On that note of leading troops, I figured that since one of the things that I'm doing on the YouTube page is that I am covering the Alexander the Great series, Making of a God, that they're making on Netflix or not making on Netflix, but is currently out on Netflix that I thought that we should do a proper good history on Alexander the Great, something that considering everything that we've talked about, every single thing that I have done across my varying channels, I haven't really talked about the guy all that much. Like, I know I've made a couple shorts here and there, like in the case of the Siege of Tyre and other things like that. But in general, I really have not talked much about him, which is surprising because Alexander Third of Macedon, which, yeah, he was actually the third, who is also better known as Alexander the Great. He is the king from the fourth century B.C. that was the son of King Philip II of Macedon, who would end up becoming king after his father's death in 336 B.C., and then immediately after that would conquer most of what was at the time the known world. When we are talking about the history of Alexander, him and his campaigns are things that became absolutely legendary after his death. These are things that would influence the tactics and the careers of later Greek and Roman generals, and they would also at the same time inspire numerous biographies that would attribute to him a kind of godlike status. Many people would even say that he was the greatest general of all time. And even if that is not true, he is easily one of the most popular and well-known figures in all of history. But in order to talk about Alexander the Great the Man, we need to talk about Alexander the Not-Yet-Great when he was still a child. So when Alexander was young, he was taught to fight and ride by Leonidas of Epirus, who was the ruler of a neighboring state and also a relative of his mother Olympias. From this, he was able to learn how to endure difficult things such as forced marches, and that was only in the military aspect. You see, his father, Philip, or Philip II, was interested in cultivating a refined king, one who would be able to do everything. And so he hired another tutor, Lysimachus, to teach the boy reading, writing, and also how to play the lyre. This teaching would instill in Alexander a love of reading and music and, in general, many things about Greek culture. And at the age of 13 or 14, he was then introduced to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And yes, when I say Aristotle, I'm talking about that Aristotle, like the famous philosopher. This being one whom Philip would hire as a private tutor for the young king or future king. He would study with Aristotle until he was around 16 years old And the two, even after this, were said to have remained in touch over the course of Alexander's later campaigns. And my friends, while his various tutors' influences definitely had a very profound effect upon him, Alexander from the very get-go seemed to be destined for something that was going to be great from the moment of his birth. He had, after all, a father whose accomplishments would create a firm foundation for his successes that he would have later in life. And I am saying this right now, but people generally do not give Philip II as much credit as he rightly deserves. Because although his father is typically only remembered as being, okay, I should even specify this, the father of Alexander the Great, that's pretty much all that it is that he is known for, Philip II was an extremely accomplished king and military commander in his own right, one that does not get the proper credit that he should. He is the individual who would set the stage for all of his son's victories over Darius III and his conquest of Persia. He is the man who would allow Alexander the Great to have the tools that he needed to become the Great. And here's what I mean by that. Philip should already be the Great, because he inherited a very weak, backwards country, something with a very ineffective, undisciplined army, and he took this force and he molded it into a formidable, efficient fighting machine, something that eventually would subdue all the neighboring territories around Macedonia and after that, subjugate most of Greece. The classic image that you typically think of when you think of Alexander the Great and his Macedonian pike phalanx, that is not something that Alexander created. That is something that his father, Philip II, created. Over the course of the years of his rule, he would use bribery, he would use war, he would use threats, he would use anything that he could in order to secure his kingdom. And without his determination, without his brutality, without his skill, history probably never would have really heard of Alexander. Or if it did, it wouldn't have remembered him as he wouldn't have been as great as what it is that you become. And so while it is very obvious that his father would have a great impact upon him, at the same time, there's this little bit of a weird thing, especially considering that if you have seen the Netflix series, how it is that Alexander thought about himself. Because Alexander, apparently himself, would see his entire being, his success, as something that had been chosen, destined to happen by divine forces. The whole Netflix making of a god thing has him call himself the son of Zeus. And yes, he would actually end up calling himself the son of Zeus and would claim the status of a demigod, which would link the bloodline of his two favorite heroes of antiquity, Achilles and Hercules, with himself, and he would try and behave in the same way that they did. Everything that Alexander the Great did was based off this divine belief later on, it seems. And that belief in his divinity apparently comes from his mother, who, per some of the stories when talking about this, Olympias would go and tell him that his birth was actually a virgin birth, that she had been miraculously impregnated by Zeus herself. And so his birth was oftentimes associated with great signs and wonders, such as a bright star gleaming over Macedonia that night and the destruction of the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Plutarch would even write that, quote, Alexander was born the sixth of Hetacombion, which month the Macedonians call loose. That same day, the Temple of Diana at Ephesus was burnt, which Hegesias of Magnesia made the occasion of a conceit Phrygian enough to have stopped the conflagration. The temple, he says, took fire and was burnt while its mistress was absent, assisting the birth of Alexander. And all the eastern soothsayers, who happened to be then at Ephesus, looked upon the ruin of this temple to be the forerunner of some other calamity, ran about the town, beating their faces, and crying that the day had brought forth something that would prove fatal and destructive to all of Asia. Which, if you're talking about what Alexander the Great would later do, yeah, yeah, that kind of would end up happening. The whole problem with this thing is that Plutarch, which is oftentimes the source that is used in many of these ancient stories about Alexander, is that he came a good 400 years after Alexander the Great. So while we use him as one of the greatest and best possible sources of information, the equivalent of this is like me going and writing a direct history about the settling of the first colony of the English Jamestown, like I was there or something we don't actually know if the stories of divinity and Alexander's belief in his divinity started before his conquests or after them. And honestly, it just seems more likely that the stories of his mother were retroactively added into history in order to prove his own divinity and birthright afterwards. And moving beyond that point, although his birth is something that is very well documented by historians, there is very little actual information on what he was like as a child. Aside, of course, tales of his intelligence, as one of the things that he apparently did when he was just a child at the age of seven was interview visiting dignitaries about Persia, about its strengths, its weaknesses, its geographical settings, etc. In addition to that, we know about his tutors, his childhood friends, such as Cassander, Ptolemy, and Hephaeston, and these would be individuals that would become lifelong companions and generals in the army that he would lead. Fast forward a little bit of time, and in 338 BC, you have King Philip II of Macedon, who invades and conquers the Greek city-states. Philip would take advantage of the fact that the Greek city-states, like much of their history, were divided by years of squabbling and infighting. And from this, he would succeed in doing what no Greek city-state had been able to actually do. He would unite Greece. However, as time went on, he and his son and heir, Alexander, gradually began to grow apart. Whether this was because Alexander was very intelligent and could be potentially a threat to his throne or some other issue, we don't actually know. But tensions were going to rise between the father and son. Because Alexander's mother was from neighboring Epirus, the king was oftentimes pressured by a number of his friends and allies and advisors to marry a true Macedonian princess, and from that provide the country with an heir that was purely and wholly Macedonian. As an example of one of these things when this happened is that in 337 B.C., Attalus, who was one of the close friends of King Philip and a Macedonian commander, would convince Philip to marry his niece, Cleopatra Eurydice, and from there would be able to provide a more suitable heir. As Plutarch would write about this, quote, At the wedding of Cleopatra, whom Philip fell in love with and married, she being much too young for him, Her uncle Attalus, in his drink, desired the Macedonians would implore the gods to give them a lawful successor to the kingdom by his niece. End quote. This, of course, being something that would imply that Alexander was not actually the lawful heir to Macedon. That he was, perhaps, not even Philip's child. A bastard. At the wedding banquet, Alexander became incredibly angry at this. And when he voiced his outrage and was furious both at Attalus' comments and also his father being completely drunk, because of the remarks that he made, he and his mother were temporarily exiled. She being sent back to Epirus and he being sent to Illyria. Hello, my friends. Takuya here. And before we get back to the show, I would like to thank today's sponsor, Factor. For those of you who do not know, Factor's delicious ready to eat meals are things that make eating better every day so much easier. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready for pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, veggie, whatever it is you need, it has it. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that will make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. Because look, the reality is, is that factor is way less expensive than simply getting takeout for every meal. And this is something that is all dietitian approved. It is significantly more nutritious and delicious. It is better than what it is that you could do from a restaurant. And without all the time waste that you have to worry about about prepping the meals in the first place, no, factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat in the first place. There's no prep, there's no cooking or cleanup needed. Everything is already ready to go. So, head on over to factormeals.com slash history of everything 50 and use code history of everything 50 to get 50% off. That's code history of everything 50 at factormeals.com slash history of everything 50 to get 50% off. Hey everyone, Sakuya here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Philip's next goal after this was to defeat Greece's age-old enemy to the east, Persia. But before any of this could happen, he ends up getting assassinated. Now, we do not know exactly why this happened. We do not know how, per se, it happened, like who was responsible behind the scenes. But what would go down is that in 336 BC, a former friend, and it seems lover of Philip, the head of his bodyguard, Pausanias, would become angry with Philip over some kind of personal matter and end up stabbing him to death. Alexander was very quickly crowned as king, and as Plutarch would again write, quote, Pausanias, having had an outrage done to him at the instance of Atlas and Cleopatra, when he found he could get no reparation for his disgrace at Philip's hands, watched his opportunity, and murdered him, the guilt of which fact was laid for the most part upon Olympias, who was said to have encouraged and exasperated the enraged youth to revenge. End quote. Olympias' part in the assassination is never something that has actually been proven. Like We do not know if she was responsible, but we do know that she, Alexander's mother, had always wanted the throne for Alexander. And it is very possible that with Philip having been married again, and with the push of some of his advisers for a, quote, pure-blooded heir, then this is something that could have encouraged her to eliminate the possibility of this threat. And after that, Philip's new wife and child were also quickly put to death by Olympias, eliminating any kind of significant claimant to the throne. Alexander would then later also order the murder of Attalus, who was in command of the advance guard of the army in Asia Minor and was Cleopatra's uncle. The interesting thing about this entire point and why Attalus was seen as a kind of threat is that at the time that all this was going down, Attalus was corresponding with Demosthenes of Athens, who was one of the leaders down there that was a threat to Macedonia and its rule and subjugation of the Greeks this was over the possibility of Attalus defecting to Athens and working against the Macedonians, an alliance, if you will. Because of this, and because Attalus had also severely insulted Alexander, even though Attalus sent the offer that he had received from Demothenes to Alexander as a proof of loyalty, Alexander may have considered him a little bit too dangerous to actually be left alive, and so he had him killed. As all of this happened as Alexander took the throne. News of Philip's death would rouse many different states across Greece into revolt. These states would include Athens, Thebes, the Thracian tribes to the north, and Thessaly. When news of the revolts reached Alexander, he had to respond very quickly. He would muster around 3,000 Macedonian cavalry and would very quickly ride south towards Thessaly. And there, what he found was the Thessalian army occupying the pass between Mount Olympus and Mount Ossa. And so what he did was he ordered his men to quickly ride over Mount Asa. And when the Thessalians awoke the next day, thinking that they were going to block Alexander from being able to attack them from the front, instead, what they found was Alexander in their rear, which panicked them, and they promptly surrendered, allowing him to add their cavalry force to the one that he already had, increasing his numbers, and then with this, he could continue south. As he would head south, he would stop at Thermopylae, and there he was recognized as the leader of the Sacred League before heading further south down into Corinth. And it's at this point, it's very obvious that any hope of resisting the new young king was over, and Athens promptly would go and sue for peace. Alexander would then go and pardon the rebels, and at Corinth, he would then take the title of hegemon or leader, and like Philip, was then appointed commander for the coming war against Persia. But at the same time that this happens, that he is down there in the south, he also receives news that the Thracians to the north are uprising. In the spring of 335 BC, then, he goes and advances to the north in order to try and suppress these revolts. He travels to the country of the independent Thracians, and at Mount Hamas, the Macedonian army would attack and defeat the Thracian forces there. The Macedonians would then march into the country of the Tribali, another tribe, and defeat their army as well and after that, he would march for three days straight to the Danube, encountering the Getae tribe on the opposite shore. After crossing the river at night, he would manage to surprise them and force their army into a retreat, completely crushing things and once more finishing off the revolts. Except, no, it wasn't over. News would then reach him that the Illyrian chieftain of Cletus and King Glacius of the Talanti, they were now also in revolt against him. And so now marching west into Illyria, he would then have to defeat each in turn, forcing the rulers to flee with their troops. With this, finally, these victories would allow him to secure his northern frontier, as well as the south and everything. Now it was time to head to Asia, right? No, no, that's actually not what would happen at all. Everyone talks about Alexander the Great and the leadership that he would exemplify heading east but not nearly as many people dwell on what was going wrong at the beginning of his campaign. Because while Alexander was pacifying things in the north, after he had just finished things in the south, the Thebans and the Athenians would rebel once again against him. And so after pacifying things in the north, he then had to immediately head south again. And while other cities hesitated to actually take a stand against him, Thebes would in this instant actually decide to fight. However, their resistance did not work, and after beating them, Alexander would raise the city of Thebes to the ground and would end up dividing its territory between other cities that were more loyal to him. The end of Thebes was something that was going to cow Athens into seeking forgiveness again and not actually stand against him. This would finally At long last, leave all of Greece temporarily at peace and under his thumb. Now was the time that Alexander could finally set out on his Asian campaign, leaving behind a region to rule in his stead, Antipater. And so, with a Macedonian army of approximately 32,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry, Alexander would cross over to Asia Minor in 334 BC to begin his conquest of Achaemenid Persia. And while Alexander and his men were at Troy, The Persians themselves were holding a council of local satrapies in order to discuss the arrival of this Macedonian king and how to possibly plan a strategy against him. One of the individuals that was leading things, Memnon, a high-ranking Greek mercenary that was loyal to King Darius, suggested that they should try and scorch the earth. By destroying crops, farms, villages, and everything along the way this was going to deprive Alexander of getting any possible provisions to be able to fuel his army and move forward. However, the local satraps, which were vassals of the king, they didn't like this idea. Partly because Memnon was a Greek and they didn't want that to be something that overshadowed their Persian authority, but simultaneously, they didn't want their lands that they were still ruling to be destroyed. That was something that since this was not directly operated by the crown, they were actually in charge of their own territory, This meant that they themselves would end up suffering the consequences afterwards, and so, no, they didn't want to do this. Of course, they considered Persia to be vastly superior in warfare, in money, in tactics, in everything to these invading Greeks, and so they didn't think that it was going to be necessary. Thus, they decided to put the Macedonians on the defensive by gathering their forces and waiting for Alexander at the river Granicus. This at first seemed like a really good spot because the Granicus was roughly around 50 or 60 feet wide and at the same time had a fast current along with steep embankments. This meant that for anyone who was actually defending themselves since the Greeks would have to advance across it, that the defenders, the Persians, were supposed to have an advantage. And after receiving word from his scouts of the Persians locations at Granicus, Alexander would advance towards the river. And he realized at that point that he had to defeat the Persians in order to be able to get the resources that he would need to continue on attacking Persia. As the Macedonian forces neared the river, Parmenion, one of Alexander's most loyal generals and also the commander of his left flank, he advised Alexander that they should not attack now, that with the men being so tired, they should wait until morning. But according to Plutarch, Alexander would reply that it would, quote, disgrace the Hellespont should he fear the Granicus. Historians would later speak of this encounter saying that Alexander realized that the Persians were not afraid of him because they didn't know what he was actually capable of. And so rejecting Parmenion's plea, the battle would begin that afternoon. And amazingly enough, it would only last around an hour. Although the numbers of course vary among many different sources, we don't exactly know the exact numbers. Modern accounts number the Persians at around 10,000 cavalry and 5,000 Greek mercenary units plus perhaps another 16,000 more infantry from other sources. We don't necessarily know. Alexander's forces would number only around 13,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry, and from this, they would be somewhat outnumbered. One of the unique and problematic situations that would occur over the course of this battle, though, is that the Persians apparently positioned their cavalry on the banks of the Granicus, Something that you normally wouldn't actually do with cavalry. You don't sit them in an area where they're not able to really move. The Greek mercenary infantry, around 5,000 men, were placed behind them. And many people believe that this, in the end, is the thing that would end up costing the Persians the battle. The Persian cavalry was not able to move forward because of the river banks, nor was it able to actually pull back from the location because the infantry behind them was going to block their movement. In addition to that, the weapon that was unique to the Persians that they were able to utilize with great speed was the scythed chariot, something that, on the muddy banks of a river, you couldn't actually utilize. As for why this was done, we will probably never know, and with the lack of leadership that the Persians had, short of Memnon, it just seems that the battle ended up being lost before it ever really began. According to the sources, Alexander made himself extremely obvious because of the brightness of his arms and equipment. He was also quite noticeable by the large white plume that he had on his helmet, and the fact that in comparison to the Persians, he went and led his men from the front. This obviousness is not something that would escape the Persians, whose main objective in this was to kill Alexander. Kill Alexander, and the rest of his men would retreat. That was the basic idea. And so what seems to have happened is that for a brief moment, both armies stood across from each other in silence. Alexander had lined his forces on the western banks of the river, and Parmenion would command the left flank, while Alexander, with his bodyguards, his companion cavalry forces, and light troops stationed themselves on the far right. In the center, he would have the traditional phalanx units, where the Thessalian cavalry and additional light troops. Alexander would become the aggressor and send from his center companion cavalry, lancers, and light troops across the river first. The Persians then responded with their own hail of arrows and javelins to try and stop their advance, and from this they were intent upon attacking the Macedonians in the water where things were significantly more slippery. It is actually quite hard to attack across a river when the water is literally working against you. Memnon himself would end up leading the Persian center, and as more Persians would join the attack against the Macedonian center, attention was drawn away from Alexander himself, who was not there in the back, but rather in the very front, in the thick of it, on
0: the right-hand flank. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. information, connect with a Wealth Advisor today at corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: Although causing considerable damage to the attacking center, The Persian weaponry is not something that would be all that effective at being able to take them out. The Macedonians were utilizing long sarissas, these massive lances that were able to hold the Persians at bay and simultaneously still allow them to advance into their ranks. And amidst the sound of trumpets then, Alexander and his men would plunge into the water on the opposite side of the bank diagonally and attack the Persians directly. Upon arriving on the opposite side of the bank, the fight would turn into hand-to-hand combat, and although suffering a number of casualties, Alexander would gradually gain the advantage, with many Persians being forced to retreat after this. When this would happen, over the course of the battle, the Greek mercenary units would manage to hold the line, but for the rest of the Persians, they were forced into a rout. As all of this was happening in the thick of combat, Alexander would notice Mithridates, who was Darius' son-in-law riding with a squadron of cavalry, and would detach himself from the main Persian forces. Alexander attacked him, slashing Mithridates across the face, and Rhesus, a Persian satrap commander, would also notice that this attack was happening, and would attack Alexander himself, slicing off a part of the plume and cracking his helmet. Alexander would then very quickly stab him, and another Persian commander, Spithridates, would go and raise his own weapon in order to attack Alexander. But at the exact moment that this would happen, Cletus the Black would attack him first, cutting off Spithridates' arm, and from this, saving Alexander's life. With the loss of some of the key leaders of the Persian force, the Persians very quickly became disorganized, and although not entirely destroyed, their morale was, and from this, they would retreat. As the Persians fell back and retreated, Alexander, instead of pursuing them, would go and turn his attention to the Greeks, individuals that would beg him for mercy, but this is not actually something that would end up happening. We don't know why, per se, what would happen would happen, but the way that Plutarch would end up describing the entire thing is that, quote, the mercenary Greeks, who, by making a stand upon a rising ground, desired quarter, which Alexander, guided rather by passion than judgment." refused to grant and charging them himself first had his horse, which in this case, we're not talking about the famous horse Bucephalus, killed under him. And this impulsiveness of his to cut off these experienced desperate men cost him the lives of more of his own soldiers than all the battle before, besides those who were wounded. Yes, so what ended up happening is that rather than going and allowing these Greeks to surrender, he would instead surround them on all sides and attack them himself, killing them. Of the 5,000 Greek mercenaries who were there, only 2,000 are reported to have survived, and these were then sent back to Macedon in order to work as slaves in the mines. The rest of them were, of course, slaughtered. As for why Alexander ignored their pleas, we don't necessarily know. Some believe that he wanted to make a point of them taking Persian money, while others say that it was mostly just anger and the near-death experience that he had had in the battle that still had his blood up and caused him to then resort to violence rather than forgiveness. After this battle would happen, he would then liberate, as he would commonly phrase much of his conquest the varying cities, the cities of Sardis and Ephesus from Persian rule that same year before moving on to others in Asia Minor. At Ephesus, he would offer to rebuild the Temple of Artemis, which had been something that was destroyed by arson when he had been born, but the city actually didn't allow him to do this, weirdly enough. In 333 BC, fast-forwarding a bit of time, Alexander and his troops would then defeat the larger force of King Darius III of Persia at the Battle of Issus. And there, Alexander would then go on to sack the Phoenician cities of Baalbek and Sidon, which had surrendered, in 332 BC, and then after this would lay siege to the island city of Tyre. The siege that we're talking about here is easily one of the most famous sieges in history. And honestly, over the course of this podcast, I could probably do an entire episode dedicated to each and every single one of the battles that he did, because these things are truly massive. But if I did that, then there's no way in hell I would actually manage to finish this thing in any reasonable amount of time. The short of it is that Alexander was so determined to conquer the city of Tyre that this island fortress that was split off from the mainland, he went and attached to the mainland he built a causeway from the mainland to the island from which he could mount his siege engines and actually move forward to attack the city. This causeway in time would collect enough earth around it, and that is the very reason as to why to this day, Tyre is no longer an island. It's actually part of the mainland in Lebanon. And for their stubborn resistance in refusing him for that entire time, the inhabitants of the city were slaughtered and their survivors sold into slavery. In 331 BC then, he would move down and conquer Egypt, where he would found the famous city today of Alexandria. At the Oracle of Siwa, this is where he was actually proclaimed the son of the god Zeus Amon. And from this, he would start adopting many different, I'm not even sure about the phrase that I would use here in order to describe this. Mannerisms, beliefs, ideas, this appears to be when he would actually start to identify himself as being of divine origin, as the son of a god and not a mortal. He was a demigod, much in the same way as Achilles was. And though he had conquered Egypt at this point, Alexander wasn't interested in staying there. He wasn't interested in converting everyone over to his ideas or his beliefs or his religion. No, the only thing that he cared about Egypt was the wealth that it would bring him and his empire of allowing him to keep his troops supplied and allow him to move into the real prize that he desired, Persia. Now, that's not saying that he didn't ruthlessly suppress people or uprisings, because he absolutely did. As everything that we've described here so far, he would not hesitate to annihilate anyone who opposed him. But after designing plans for the city of Alexandria, he didn't stick around. He left Egypt, Syria, and then northern Mesopotamia, and after that, would pursue things into Persia. In 331 BC, Alexander would meet King Darius III again at the battlefield of Guagamela, where, once again, facing overwhelming numbers against him, he would decisively defeat Darius III, who would ultimately flee the field. Alexander would then move on to take Babylon and Susa, which surrendered unconditionally without resistance. In the winter of 330 BC, Alexander would then march towards Persepolis, who would actually go and resist him at the Battle of the Persian Gates, which was actually defended by an individual called Ariobazarnes and his sister, Yotab, at the head of the Persian troops. Alexander would defeat these forces and take Persepolis, and in response to them resisting him, he would burn the entire city to the ground. According to some of the ancient historians, when talking about this story, Alexander reportedly started the fire, which destroyed the main palace and most of the city, as revenge for burning the Acropolis back during Xerxes' Persian invasion of Greece a hundred-something years earlier in 480 BC. Fast forward a little bit of time, and the Persians, at this point, have lost pretty much everything. In the summer of 330 BC, Darius III gets assassinated by his own general and cousin Bessus, which was an act that Alexander was thoroughly disgusted by. Darius III's corpse was treated with the greatest respect, as were the surviving members of his family, as Alexander didn't want that to happen, he wanted to beat the enemy properly, fair and square. But the end result was pretty much the same. Alexander would proclaim himself king of Asia, and then instead of suing for peace with the new ruler Bessus, he would instead continue on with his conquests, marching into the region of modern-day Afghanistan. In 329 BC, he would go on to found the city of Alexandria Escate on the Xartes River, destroying the city of Seropolis. There, he would defeat the Scythians at the northern borders of the empire, and between the fall of 330 BC and the spring of 327 BC, he would campaign against Bactria and Sogdiana, the battles for which he would win just as he had won every single one so far. Eventually, the cousin of Darius III, Bessus, was captured and executed for his treachery against his former king. The whole reason as to why this was done was to send a message to the Persians that any disloyalty of that kind was never something that was going to be rewarded. It did not matter if any generals tried to betray their leaders in order to side with him. The mere fact that they would betray their king in the first place meant that there was no way that they could actually be trusted. And so, he was executed. Over the course of this time period, Alexander would found many, many, many different cities, of which Alexandria in Egypt is merely only one of them. I actually forget at this point about how many we're talking about here, but the number is quite literally in the hundreds from the amount that we know that did happen versus the others that perhaps have been wiped away from history. He would, during this time, not only try to push his image as a liberator and a freedom fighter of Greece, but simultaneously as a god. It was during this time that he would adopt the title of Shahanshah, the King of Kings, something that was used by the rulers of the First Persian Empire. In keeping with this status, Alexander would actually introduce the Persian custom of forcing those who would address him to first kneel and kiss his hand. As you can probably imagine from all this, Alexander is getting a little bit full of himself, and the Macedonian troops that serve under him are, as time is going on, becoming more and more uncomfortable with him essentially being treated as a god and also at the same time adopting more Persian customs the very people that they were there to fight and conquer in the first place. Eventually, assassination plots would be hatched against him, and these would fail. They would end up getting revealed, and the conspirators behind them would be executed. And it didn't really matter who it was at this point, even if they were old friends and compatriots. Callisthenes, who is actually one of the childhood friends that Alexander grew up with, was one of the people who ended up getting implicated in one of these plots. Cletus, that individual that we had mentioned before, the guy who had actually saved Alexander's life at the Battle of Granicus, he would end up falling into the same kind of trap. In 327 BC, Alexander would end up disposing of both of these people in separate incidents for treason and questioning his authority. Alexander, as time went on, became more and more involved in drinking something that he already had done. He already was a heavy drinker, and this apparently was a big problem in his youth, but drinking to excess became an even greater issue as time went on. And in the case of Cletus's death, this is likely something that influenced him being killed. Both Cletus and Callisthenes had become quite vocal in criticizing Alexander and his adoption of Persian customs. And although he was extremely skilled at dealing with the people that he conquered, When his own subordinates went against him, this was not something that he ever allowed. And when he was drinking, this would turn things pretty nasty.
2: Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one.
1: What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a
0: whole lot of booze?
2: <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's podcast.
1: and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight.
2: Right, so come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Cheers. He would oftentimes break out into bouts of violence. And Cletus would end up dying a swift death because of this. Through a javelin that Alexander would throw at him after one of these bouts of drinking. Calisthenes, on the other hand, was imprisoned and would die in confinement. This was starting to be the beginning of the end for Alexander, but it wasn't over yet. In 327 BC, with the Persian Empire firmly under his control and now newly married to the Bactrian noblewoman Roxana, Alexander would turn his attention to India. There, having heard of the exploits of the great Macedonian general, the Indian king, Omphys of Taxila, would actually submit to his authority without a fight. Aspasioi and the Asakinoi tribes They were not willing to do this. They resisted him. In the battles that would happen throughout 327 BC and going into 326 BC, Alexander would manage to subdue these tribes, finally meeting King Porus of Parava at the Battle of the Hydaspes River in 326. Porus, during this battle, would charge Alexander's forces with elephants and reportedly would fight so incredibly bravely with his troops that he actually earned the deep respect of Alexander. Alexander liked this guy so much that after he had been defeated, he would end up installing Horus as ruler of a larger region than what he had previously been in charge of. He was now going to be the representative of Alexander in the East. At the time that this would happen, Alexander's horse Bucephalus, the famous stallion that he'd had since his youth, would be killed in this battle. And Alexander would end up naming one of the two cities that he would found after the battle, Bucephala after him. The intention that Alexander had at this point was to continue the war, to continuously march on, to go across and reach the river Ganges, and then further conquests. But his troops, by this point, were exhausted. And considering just how hard Porus had fought, they didn't want to deal with it anymore. They'd been away from their families for, some of them, a decade at this point, and they didn't want to continue on. So these troops would mutiny in 326 BC and refuse to go any further. Alexander tried to get his men to press on, but they were not willing to do this. And so failing to win them over, they would finally get their wishes. He ended up splitting his army to two, sending half back to Susa by sea under the command of Admiral Nearchus through the Persian Gulf, and would march the other half of his troops through the Gedrosian Desert in 325 BC, almost a full year after his troops had mutinied. From there, he would move through the regions, pacifying them once again to make sure that they didn't revolt against him. And upon his return, he found that many of the satraps that he had left back in Persia, who he'd entrusted with the rule of the land, had apparently abused their power. And so he executed these, as well as any who had vandalized the tomb of Cyrus the Great at the old capital city of Pesagarde. He then ordered the ancient capital and tomb to be restored, and he took other measures to try and integrate his army with the people of the region and merge the cultures of Greece and Persia to mixed results. Alexander held a mass marriage service in Susa at 324 BC, in which he would marry members of his senior staff, the companions that he worked with, to Persian princesses and noblewomen while he himself would also marry a daughter of Darius III. This being something that would allow him to identify himself legitimately with Persian royalty, much in the same way as actually Darius III had in order to get his position as king in the first place. Many of his troops, though, were not happy about this. They didn't like the idea of this merger that was occurring between Greek and Persian. And they really, really, during this time, hated how over this period, Alexander was adopting more Persian dress and manners and identifying himself as an almost Persian king. They also hated at the time that this was happening that Persians were being promoted over Macedonians in the army and Alexander's order of merging Persian and Macedonian units into one cohesive thing. The issue that Alexander had during this time and why this was possibly necessary is that years upon years upon years of campaigning was going to be something that gradually was going to whittle away at the available Greek men that he had. So over time, it was necessary to utilize local forces, and these would have to be trained in the Greek fashion. Alexander would respond by appointing Persians to prominent positions in the army, and would then award traditional Macedonian titles and honors to Persian units. His troops couldn't really do anything at this time. They would eventually back down and submit to his wishes, and in a gesture of goodwill, he would return more titles to the Macedonians and would have a massive feast in which he would dine and drink with the army. At this point, he had largely forgotten about a number of the customs that made people uncomfortable. He no longer required people to kneel and kiss his hand in deference before being able to speak with him. But still, his men were not exactly comfortable with how he still composed himself as a Persian ruler rather than a Macedonian king. And it's around this time, in 324 BC, that his lifelong friend from his childhood, and also, I'm going to say this, possibly his lover and his second-in-command, Hephaisin, would die from a fever. Now, when this would happen, there were some reports saying that he died of sickness, there were some that said that he was poisoned out of jealousy from others, we don't necessarily know. And the other point about this that many people have a tendency to get angry with is when people talk about the sexuality of Alexander the Great. Some people will say that he was homosexual or bisexual or any number of these things. And the reality of the situation is that he was probably bisexual. This is something that was supported by many different biographies that were written after his death, though we have no absolute certain accounts. It very seems to be plausible, as Hephaiston was routinely noted in the biographies of the ancient sources that would call him Alexander's lover as well as his best friend. So for any of those who go and say that this is something that is propaganda, that is likely not true. It very well seems to be that Hephaiston, as well as many others, he was not the only one, many others ended up being lovers of Alexander the Great, men and women alike. Many historians would note that in the accounts after Hephaiston's death that Alexander was completely inconsolable when this happened. Ancient sources give several examples of this, as Plutarch would claim that Alexander slaughtered a neighboring town as a sacrifice to his friend. And another, Arian, would write that he had Hephaiston's doctor executed for failing to cure him. The manes and tails of horses were cut as a sign of mourning, and Alexander refused to promote another to Hephaiston's position as commander of the cavalry. He would abstain from food, from alcohol, from everything, and would declare a period of mourning throughout the entirety of his empire, something that usually would only happen when a king would die. And it was here, while he was still dealing with the grief of Hephaiston's death, that Alexander would return to Babylon in 323 BC, and with plans to further expand his empire, not actually ending up happening. He would die at Babylon at the age of 32 on either the 10th or the 11th of June in 323 BC, after suffering 10 days of high fevers. There are multiple theories that concern exactly how it is that he died, and these things would range from poisoning to malaria to a variety of different things, perhaps coming from bad water, from a bacterial infection that he could have obtained. We simply do not know. Plutarch would say that 14 days before his death, Alexander would entertain his fleet admiral Nyrkis and his friend Medius of Larissa with a long bout of drinking, after which he would fall into this fever from which he would never recover. For fear of what would happen when he died, people would ask him who should succeed him, and Alexander reportedly said, to the strongest. Which, that is something that doesn't exactly leave things, you know, secure. The answer would lead to his empire becoming divided between four of his generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Tigonus, and Seleucus, these becoming later known as the Diadochi, or the successors. Plutarch and Arian, the historians, would claim, though, that he didn't actually say this, that he had instead passed on his reign to Perdiccas, who was the friend of Hephaeston with whom Alexander had carried their friend's body to his funeral in Babylon. Perticus was also Alexander's friend, as well as his bodyguard and also a cavalryman, and it would make sense considering that Alexander did have the habit of rewarding those that he was close with with very good favors, and that he would choose Perticus over others because of that close relationship. We don't know of the truth of this matter, though, because following Alexander's death, the generals ignored this possible wish, and Perticus was assassinated in 321 B.C. His longtime comrade, Cassander, would then order the execution of Alexander's wife, Roxana, Alexander's son by her, and also Alexander's mother, Olympias, in order to consolidate his power as the new king of Macedonia, which was a title that he would not actually manage to hold on to, as he would later lose this to Antigonus I. Ptolemy I is said to have stolen Alexander's corpse as it was en route to Macedon and instead taken it down to Egypt in the hopes of securing a prophecy that the land in which it was laid to rest would become prosperous and unconquerable. There, he would end up founding the Ptolemaic dynasty, and this is something that would last, as we've already previously covered in episodes, until 30 BC, which would end with the death of his descendant, Cleopatra, the lover of Mark Antony. Seleucius would go on to found the Seleucid Empire, something that would comprise of Mesopotamia, Anatolia, as well as parts of India, And he would actually end up being the last remaining of the Diadochi after 40 years of constant fighting between them and their heirs. Eventually, he would become known as Seleucus I Nicator, or the Unconquered. And none of Alexander's generals would possess the same level of skill, intelligence, anything that was necessary in order to be able to unite his empire. Instead, all of them would eventually fall apart until these regions would be conquered by Rome. Still, though, the influence that they would have over these regions would allow them to create the Hellenistic period, something in which Greek thought and culture would become combined with the indigenous thoughts and populations of the people around them. And from here, we would get the Hellenistic period, as I said. That, my friends, is the story of Alexander the Great. And although definitely when talking about a number of his battles, we could go into far more detail, I unfortunately have significantly more troubles that I need to worry about with my own battles that are going to be happening. So my friends, thank you very much for listening here today. I appreciate all of you. I hope to see you all here again in the future. Thank you very much for listening and or watching, depending upon when you see this on YouTube. Goodbye, my friends, and I will see you next time.